Next week, as I said, we're going to be spending uh, some unique time in prayer as part of the service. And, uh, and then the following week, we're going to begin a series called Post Tenebrous Lux. And you're like, wait, 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 did you just say something not in English? Yes, I spoke Latin, probably not correctly, but uh, Post Tenebrous Lux, which means after darkness light. And that phrase was actually the motto for the Reformation that happened exactly 500 years ago, the end of this month. 500 years ago, Luther posted the 95 Thesis. And on that 95 Thesis, he called the church to renewed action and passion. And quite frankly, if it wasn't for that day and what happened afterwards, we wouldn't be sitting here right now. It would be a very different environment for the church. It began the movement uh, that the Protestants are part of. And so we as a church are the direct result of many of the things that happened 500 years ago. And what was formational in the 95 Thesis was that basically how we worship, how we approach God, uh, the spirit of the church, how the church functions, all were a part of his 95 points that he stated that day in Germany. And so we're going to actually look at what were the key points. We're not going to be doing 95 Sundays. That would be two years worth. But for eight Sundays, we are going to look at the key points, the highlight points of what caused the church to become what it is today. And so that will again begin in two weeks from this moment. Today, we are continuing in the series called uh, Creating Space, Expecting Harvest, which is also the theme for uh, hopefully the future uh, expansion of the facility here. But the, the statement, the phrase is actually the vision of the church and how we see these next few years for us as a church, how we're praying as leadership, how we are moving forward and making decisions is based on our expectation of harvest and creating space for that anticipation. And so this morning, I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to uh, what is going to be Mark chapter 11. And if you need a Bible, our ushers would be glad to provide you one. Just hold your hand up and they will hand you one as they're coming forward right now. We'll get to Mark 11 here in a moment, but uh, let me just highlight a few things of where we've been over the last few weeks that, again, what makes us tick? What, why is LAC the way LAC is? is why are we making the decisions that we are making? And the first one, quite frankly, is if you get around any of us, those of us that are on staff, those who are in leadership, whether it be elders, deacons, deaconesses, other leaders throughout the church, hopefully the number one trait you're going to discover is that we're in love with Jesus. That we're so in love with Jesus that it's the, it, that, that love relationship causes us to act upon everything in light of that. And when you're in love with Jesus, we talked about then, when you're in love with him, then what's upon his heart becomes upon your heart. And, and so if you're in love with Jesus, those nearest you are going to be basically rubbed off on. They, your, your passion is going to affect them. And so when you're in love with Jesus, then you're going to show that to other people. And, <clears throat> and in fact, when you're in love with Jesus, what's upon his heart becomes upon your heart, which is other people. 
And so we really spend a lot of time talking about how that love relationship with Christ becomes overreaching into all aspects of life. And then we looked at that when you're in love with Jesus and then you become in love with what he's in love with, which is continuing to build his church and add people into the church because he was never satisfied with the 99 as he gave in his parable, then you're going to want to and begin to see things with the vision that he has in that there are many people that need to be a part of the body of Christ, that, that are isolated and are alone. The challenge is, is that God's made his quest, his strategy through you. He decides that, that in his way of doing things, in the way of his way of building the church, is he does so through the church. Which then means that you and I, if we begin to truly let what's upon his heart become upon our heart, then when we see what he sees, we're going to be compelled to act. But unfortunately, what we run into is most of us don't have space in our lives to be able to act upon what God may want to do through you. We, we lack margin. We've, we've filled our time that even when we even see opportunities to show the love of Christ, we end up often opting out of the moment because we do not have margin. We do not have space in our lives to go and do that. And so we talked about what it meant to create that space, create that margin so that as God uh, does a work in your life that he can give, that you have space for him to work through you. And then ultimately, last week we were talking about that when you've created space, one of the things that becomes a marker of God's vibrancy in your life is generosity. That we become very generous with our time, we become generous with our emotions, we become generous with our resources, and yes, even our money. And that when God is doing a great work in your heart, then the things that are at your disposal often get used to the glory of God in the lives of other people. And, and so we spoke at the, the vision that we have as a church to become a generous people. And, and we're not just talking about finance. We're talking about just with our lives that we'll be generous towards others. Which then brings me to this week. If we're in love with Jesus, then what's upon his heart, it's upon our heart. And if it's upon our heart, what's upon his heart, then we're going to be about people and loving on people, which then means we're going to have to create space for it. And then we become generous and then we become excited for what God's doing. And then we're going to be looking for what tools do we have at our disposal to be able to be used for the kingdom of God. Now, what do, you, what do I mean by Tools. Well, I, I'm not a mechanic, uh, I know, but I am better off than Matt Sawada. Matt, Matt held up a toolbox uh, or some tools a few years ago, and he held up his hammer. And his hammer is like a little toy hammer. And, and he says, this, is about, this tells you what kind of skills he has with tools. And I can say I can up Matt a little bit because I have two hammers of full size. Right, Matt? And in my toolbox, I actually have a tool cabinet of which there's a lot of tools. And what's, what, the reason why I bought a standing tool cabinet is because you just never know when you might need a particular tool. And so you start gathering over time when, when you need a particular tool and you don't have it, you go get it and then you add it to your toolbox. And then that's how things grow. Now, some of you have significant toolboxes. My stand-up toolbox is not very big. It's only about three feet wide and probably about four feet tall. But, but it holds a lot of tools, and, and I use many of them over time. God is much like that. At his fingertips are many tools, of which we're 
some of those tools for sure. But there are things at God's disposal that he uses like a tool in a toolbox at different points. I mean, imagine being the creator of the universe where everything that is in existence came from the source of you. And then you can use that as you wish to be able to accomplish the tasks or the goals or the vision that you might have. And that's truly how God operates. It's not just human beings that God uses as part of his toolbox. If you look at just the Old Testament alone, there were many different tools that he used that were not human beings. For instance, if you go in the book of Genesis, what tool did God use to give communication to Noah that he was indeed spared and that his family could, could begin to prepare for departure from the ark? What tool did he use to communicate that? A dove. All right, a dove. I mean, he could have just simply, he had already communicated verbally with Noah, but he could have just said, Noah, it's dry now. But no, he wanted to create a different mechanism to highlight the fact that he has indeed been spared, so he provided a dove. Now, what you may not know is as a result of that moment where the dove brought the olive branch to, uh, to Noah, that from that point on and throughout Israelite history, the dove was the symbol of God. Because of the significance that, that the provision, the communication that indeed that Noah and his family had been spared, that God chose the dove as, this, as the messenger and the communication of that, that the Hebrew people assigned the dove as the symbol of God. That's important because then when you fast forward into the New Testament, how did God show because when Jesus came out of the water, when he was being baptized, when he came out of the water, God said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. But how did he show that indeed he had marked Jesus with his spirit? He used a dove. Now, why a dove? Because the people knew that the dove was the symbol of God. So it was literally God's marking point, his symbol, his seal was being placed on Jesus so that people would know that it was God's voice that had spoken. So God used a dove as a tool. It was one of the, he could have chosen any bird. In this case, he chose the dove. Another tool that God used is in the book of Exodus. When Moses was having a hard time accepting the assignment that he was to go back to Egypt and be able to speak to the Israelites saying, God has appointed me as your leader. And then he was also told he's got to go and speak to Pharaoh and, and, and be able to say, you're to let my people go. Moses had a lot of excuses as to not go and to why he shouldn't go. But God gave him a tool, a tool by which he could prove to the people of Israel that indeed God had assigned him as leader and prove to Pharaoh that God had empowered Moses to be the voice of the people. Do you know what the tool is? A stick or a staff, a mere branch, if you will, was what God used. Now, God could have chosen anything, but in this case, he chose a staff, a rod, a stick to be that messenger that God had indeed assigned and empowered Moses to be leader of Israel. God could have chosen anything, but he chose a stick. Then you get an interesting moment that's in the book of Numbers. There was a prophet named Balaam, and he was being told by God to go and speak 
uh, well, he wasn't being told by God. He was being told by a pagan king to go and speak curses upon Israel. But Balaam knew that, that he can't speak anything but what God would say. But he wasn't listening to something that God was trying to tell him. So who did God choose as his messenger, as a prophetic voice to Balaam? A donkey. Yeah, a donkey. Well, now why, why would God choose that prophetic voice to be the messenger to a prophet? Perhaps Balaam wouldn't listen to another prophet. Because, you know, it's like, well, I'm a superior prophet to you. And this prophet might be correcting. And it's like, no, I know better. But a donkey starts speaking to you? Do you think it catches your attention? Absolutely. I have a dog and I have a horse. Well, my wife has a horse. I, I kind of help pay for the horse. But it's not my horse. It's my wife's horse. If my horse started talking to me, do you think it would catch my attention? Yes. I wouldn't tell any of you about it because you might think I'm a little strange at that point. But nonetheless, God would have my attention. So God chose a donkey to communicate the truth. Then you have another situation. In the story of Jonah, Jonah was told to go, obviously, to Nineveh to tell about God. What did God use to tell the story uh, or to get Jonah to finally humble himself and be willing to go to Nineveh? What did God use? A whale. Okay, so that one's an easy one. But there's another tool, if you will, that God used to communicate and teach Jonah. When Jonah finally goes to Nineveh, he goes there, he speaks, he tells all the truth, and then, much to his surprise, Nineveh responds and repents. But Jonah goes up on a hill. He's ready to watch the fire of God destroy Nineveh. But God had wanted from the beginning to spare Nineveh. So what did God use in his toolbox to teach Jonah while he was up on that hill that God had a different plan than him? This could be a real good test. A worm. A worm. Now, you could have said a vine, but, but there was an object that took care of the vine. God literally assigned a worm to teach Jonah a message, to teach him some truth, that God's plans was different from Jonah's plans. So just taking these few things, and, and there's many different tools that God has used throughout the Old Testament, but what, I've just mentioned a dove, I've mentioned a stick, I've mentioned a donkey, and I've mentioned a whale and a worm. But there's something that God spends more time in the Old Testament describing and preparing the people for that was a tool in his toolbox to which God himself was the direct architect and planner. He was the GC, if you will, the general contractor. He was the designer. He was the architect. And he was the funder of it. And that was the tabernacle. The tabernacle in, it takes up six chapters in the book of Exodus as it is being designed and described by God as to how it's to be built, how it's to be funded, and how it is to look. And then if this, this structure is so important to God that, that, it, that he even then filled with the Holy Spirit, his very spirit, people that were actually going to do the work of design. 
You see, this building was going to be so special that, again, and it's not even a building, it's a tent. But the structure and the way the tent was going to be designed and built and the structure and the pieces of, uh, that were going to be in it, that, that he wanted people that were uniquely skilled to accomplish the task. So he filled people with the Holy Spirit to do the task. Now, when you compare the design of the tabernacle and the temple to the, to the descriptions of the kingdom throne room of God in heaven. What we know from the temple and the tabernacle is that literally a smaller version of the throne room of God in heaven. He just took the template of heaven, the throne room in heaven, and he brought it to a smaller form and allowed it to be here on this earth. And it meant a lot to God that he wanted to make sure that people that were uniquely skilled by him were going to be a part of its building. Now, my rhetorical question to you is this. Did God need the dove? No. Did God need the donkey? Did God need a stick? Did God need a worm? No. Then why did he choose to do these things? Why would God need a building? The reality is, is that in those texts, when you read about the temple, he says, the reason why I'm going to have you build this tabernacle is because I want to reside among men and I want them to worship me. You see, he knows that you and I, by the way he created us, are visual. And if things also tend to be always the norm that we tend to neglect or not take notice. You see, God knows you and I very well. And so that's why God uses many tools to arrest our attention so that we take notice of him and we begin to worship. You see, he chooses these myriad of tools as a means to arrest our attention to him and that we then see his glory. You see, God gets glory when he uses a dove and not another human being. Because it's miraculous. It's divine. God gets the glory when it's a donkey speaking, not a prophet to a prophet. God gets the glory when a whale provides a time of reflection for Jonah. God gets the glory when a worm teaches him that God has a different plan. God gets the glory when there is a space that is so unique to anything else in history that when people come, they experience the Shekinah glory of God and they observe it and they declare him as the one true God. You see, God will use whatever is at his disposal and consistent with his character to arrest the attention of you and I so that we can know it's him and not just some human source. So then these toolboxes, we see that, that this doesn't change. Now, some of you might say, well, that was all pre-cross, before Jesus ever came, that these things were so. Post the cross, God kind of put his toolbox away, and it's just exclusively you and I. I'm going to take us on a journey to confront that 
mere thought that perhaps might be in the minds of some of you. So this is where I want to bring in Mark chapter 11. And hopefully you're already there as I asked you to turn there earlier. But the context is this. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. He is about ready to go into his final week where he is going to be crucified, hung on a cross, be buried in a grave, and then come out of that grave on the third day. This is what we call Palm Sunday. So Jesus is coming in, riding on that donkey, verse uh, 9. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered then Jerusalem and went directly to the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went back out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, starting in verse 12, the next day, and then skipping down to 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Let me stop there. So we got Jesus coming into Jerusalem. He is making his grand entrance. He is on a mission to get to a particular location. And that location isn't just the city of Jerusalem. It's the temple in Jerusalem. He shows up. It's late. It's already closed for the day, if you will. So he goes back out of the city only to prepare to re-enter. He re-enters. Now the temple courts is bustling with people. What does Jesus do? He goes crazy, if you will. Now, I'm not saying literally crazy, but he goes what would be observantly nuts to others when he is turning everything over and throwing the tables and the change on the ground and, and causing people to scatter. And what's interesting and what often gets lost in this text is after he turns over their tables, then he stands there and guards the place. It's kind of like that, that, uh, that I've seen videos of where a lion whose cub has been injured, has fought off all the, uh, the, the adversaries that want to eat the cub. But it stands there then protecting the cub once the adversaries have kind of backed off. That's the posture of Jesus in this moment. Is that after he clears it, he now keeps people from walking through with their merchandise. So they're not even allowed to walk through anymore. Jesus is in that tenacious moment where he's saying this is not right. And now, not only have I made my point, but I'm going to keep you in this moment from doing any kind of business. So he stands there, and then it says that he teaches them. He teaches them. So not only is he protecting this space, but now he's teaching them about the temple and that it is a house of prayer for all nations. It's not just a house for Israel, but it's for all nations. Jesus easily could have communicated something different about the temple. But I think we see how God feels about the place that had his name on it. 
He protects the image of it. He protects its meaning. He protects the function of it. And it matters much to him that in this moment, he makes a statement what a house of worship is to be like. Now you could say, okay, it's still pre the cross. It's still pre the cross. So it doesn't matter a whole lot. Because once the cross happens, then the place of worship matters not, nothing at all. Really. So let's go post the cross. In fact, let's go post the coming of the Holy Spirit. So for those of you that don't know what I mean by that is that when Jesus died on the cross, he went to the grave for three days and rose again on the third day. And then he spent about 40 days with his disciples at different points communicating some instructions of how they're going to uh, move the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ across the earth. Jesus then ascends into heaven and he tells them before he goes, wait in Jerusalem and then at the right time, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit and he will indwell you and the Holy Spirit will be the marking of God upon you and will be the empowerment of you to do the ministry I've called you to do. So people would say, okay, while you're post the cross now and even post the Holy Spirit, when I read when I read what I'm reading here, is that in Acts chapter 2, you'll see this on the screen, it's giving a description, not a prescription, a description of what's happening in the early church post the resurrection of Jesus Christ, post the coming of the Holy Spirit. So everything's in play for God to take on the world and change the world through his church, through the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is the description given. These believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers, all the believers, highlight that, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need, generosity, and Highlighted, every day they continued to meet together, where? At the temple, in the temple courts. And then they would go and break bread in the homes and fellowship together, eat together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily. Now, depending on how much you've been around Christendom and around the church, you will hear some people say that they do not need the church or the gathering of the church. They believe in the, what we're going to actually teach about in the post-Tenebrus Lux series, the After Darkness Light, the priesthood of the believer, which is, a, which is a theological statement that says, everyone who has the Holy Spirit in them, who has given their life to Jesus Christ, has the Holy Spirit and has direct access to the Father God. By that Holy Spirit. In other words, we can be in the presence of God without fear. We can be in the presence of God with confidence because of the blood of Christ. That's the priesthood of the believer. But some will take that then as then they don't need the church. You will not find any such statement like that in Scripture. In fact, the people that will often teach that will say, that in fact, you don't need the church. You can just gather with a few people in your home and that's fine. And they will use the text we just used as their permission to do so. Here's the problem. If you take just what they're saying, that they go into the homes and the breaking of breads and having fellowship with another, you're ignoring the context from where they just came from. 
It says that they gathered together as the whole church at the temple daily and then went into their homes for the fellowship and the breaking of bread. You see, the description of the early church post the coming of the Holy Spirit was a pattern of you gather the church together, you worship, you strengthen, you get encouraged, and then you go and you fellowship and you do the ministry and the mission of God after that. In fact, in Acts chapter 14, it says that the apostles themselves, who you can make a statement that they're so full of the Holy Spirit, they certainly don't need anybody. But yet it says in chapter 14, verse 1, that the apostles went regularly to the temple and to the synagogues. So wherever the place of worship was, they would go regularly and they would teach and they would worship. In Hebrews chapter 10, it actually gives a command to gather. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, it says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. So literally, the writer of Hebrews is saying, Do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. You see, it was already a problem in the early church. Some thought, because I have the Holy Spirit, I don't need the church. I don't need the church. But you show me a person who isolates themselves from the church, and more often than not, I can tell you that their theology ends up becoming warped over time because there's no accountability. They often become disgruntled believers. They often are not doing the mission of God because there's nothing, nobody provoking them to being on mission with God because they're isolated from the church. The writer of Hebrews is very clear. Do not give up meeting together. In fact, Paul goes on to even give rules to how we meet together. If you read chapter 13, 14, and 15, you will get very, uh, 1 Corinthians, you will get very specific rules of when you gather together of how to function. So I want us to turn there as a, as a closing passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So it's going to the right of, from Mark, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I want to read verses 23 to 26. It says this, So if the whole church comes together, and everyone speaks in tongues, and inquirers or, inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if, unbeliever, if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, then they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all. As the secrets of their hearts are laid bare, so they will fall down, worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Then what shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. So what is the purpose then of gathering? Is there the priest or the believer? Yes. We can go and pray directly to God. You do not have to go through a priest to have your prayers heard by Jesus Christ. You do not have to go through a pastor to have your prayers heard by the Father God, the creator of the universe. You can go directly to him. But that does not mean that you then are in no need of the church. 
The church becomes the place. The gathering of the church is the place where you are strengthened. You're encouraged. Encouragement is the word that you receive from the book of Hebrews. And here it's the strengthening, the edification of the church that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 14. That when we come together and we gather, it's to strengthen us. It's to encourage us. It's to charge us. It's to challenge us. Now, you could get into some fun stuff and read the rest of chapter 14 and chapter 15, and you might have some questions for me, but, but the point is, he, the expectation was, is you gather. And if the whole church gathers, which is implied here in this text, you need to have space to gather. So the charge is, the church is to gather. And if the church is to gather, you need space to gather in. And when you gather, it better be to the edification and the strengthening of the church so that as we gather together, we all walk away more on fire for Jesus and prepared to do the mission of God. And as we gather, and you see in the text that there, that is part of that gathering that Paul speaks of is also worship. It's also praise. It's also learning from each other and from God. So what are the takeaways then if God's intent is for you and I to gather? Well, first of all, I would say this. We are called by God to gather the church together to worship both for his joy and for our strengthening and encouragement. So when you and I gathered here this morning, it's for our encouragement, it's for our strengthening, but it's also by other passages in scripture for the joy of the Lord. He has joy when we gather together and we worship. It says that, that our prayers of the saints are like an aroma in his nose that he breathes in and he finds with great pleasure our prayers. It's our praises that inhabit the, the throne room of God that he enjoys having in his throne room. And so when we gather, God opens the curtain into his throne room and allows an, an, the inhabitant of praise from his people. So we are called by God to gather and to then worship and for his joy for, and for also our strengthening and encouragement. Number two, the place of worship then is meant to be a place for people of all nations to gather. It has been said that the greatest moment of segregation in, a, in, the, in the, each week in America is on Sunday morning where we gather by our colors into certain places. And, and the reality is God didn't, draw his lines like that. Worship, the gathering of the church, is across all ethnical lines. It's all across any kind of cultural lines. And I will add, it is even across some of the aspects of our understanding, or in other words, theological lines. We come together to worship. And this place is meant for that. Jesus said that it should be a place that the people of the nations can come and worship and that we protect the identity of that structure as being such. Thirdly, if we're called by God to gather, for, to worship and give him joy and to strengthen us, and then we are to have a place then that we call a place of worship, then that, that people can come from across all cultural lines then what can we make as an assumption to this or what's implied? And that is this, that places of worship 
that have the name of Jesus Christ on it, that establish that he is the one path to God, and that where God is worshipped, that these places are actually a strategic tool in the hand of God. So yes, the brick and mortar of this room, or I should say the block and mortar of this room, is part of the strategic tools of God. If this room was not here, we wouldn't be here. Is that correct? So it is a part of the strategic tool that God has used in your life, even this morning. The way we have children's spaces is a part of the strategic tool of God to minister to children. I'm still trying to figure out the strategic tool of, the, of my office across over here. It's a sinking room, but that's okay. We make it work. And God can use a donkey. He can use a modular. All right? But it is a place that God uses. And I can tell you, we have prayed over people in that modular. We have anointed people in that modular. We've seen people be healed in that modular. We have counseled marriages that came back together in that modular. So is that modular a strategic tool? In the lowest common denominator of this campus, it absolutely is. So we should not think lightly of structures. We should not think lightly of whatever means God chooses to use strategically to advance his kingdom. You see, when we gather here, we are praying that you are strengthened and encouraged. When we gather here, we also pray that you'll have the vision of God upon your heart. We see this room as being a strategic place. That's why as you leave, some of you might notice the flags occasionally on the back wall. Why are they there? It's because it's a strategic tool for us to teach you that it's not just in Lidditz. It's not just in Lidditz, Mannheim, and Ephrata. It's not just in Lancaster County. It's not just Pennsylvania. It's not just the United States. But God wants to see his glory declared to all the far reaches of the world. And as God calls LEFC, so we will go. That just happens to be the places where God has sent us this far. We are also part of that strategic tool. Hence the reason why we're here this morning, to be strengthened and encouraged and challenged. Let's pray. So Father God, thank you first of all for this space. I, I know the glory of this room is not like the glory of the temple. I know that this room certainly doesn't even uh, hold water compared to some of the beautiful places that are nearby where people are worshiping. But that's just it. It's merely a tool to advance the kingdom of God. If it doesn't do that, then really it's an unusable object that's being used poorly. And you're tenacious about things that have your name upon it. And so, God, I just ask that your name will be upon this body of believers. And as a result, your name will be upon this campus. That all who come upon this campus, like we prayed over the homes of those children, that it be a place of peace, a place of learning, a place of love. I pray the same thing over this campus. When people walk on it, that it'll be a place of peace, it'll be a place of love, and a place of learning where truth is taught. And may it also be a place where the people of the earth can worship in one heart, in one soul, in one mind. In Jesus' name I pray and to your glory, Father. Amen.